All right, so uh, Vince and, and, uh, and the, the kids, were, they've been learning about Esther and honesty and those things, and so we're going to walk through this a little bit uh, because it's a little bit of a different kind of service today. Um, we're, we're not going to dig in on any verse in particular in Esther. We're going to look at almost all of them. Not exactly, but we're going to jump around quite a bit in the book of Esther, and we're going to talk about something called providence. Providence simply is this. Now, there you go. Uh, The providence of God is the hand of God working behind the scenes out of his goodness for the good of of his people. So I want you to track that for a second, and, and I, I want you to understand when we talk about providence, what that is, is that's God's movement behind the scenes, and it, it stems from his character, his goodness, and, and it's for the good of his people. That's how this works, okay? And so one of the things that we'll understand is, as we go through uh, the book of Esther is that God's providence shines through like crazy, Okay, and if you've never understood providence or thought about providence, think of it this way. It's what the rest of the world calls coincidence or convenient. I'll give you a, an example. You've heard me talk before about um, how Carrie and I moved here. And we looked at other churches, we talked to other churches, and, and there were just roadblocks or things didn't feel good. Uh, things fell apart at the last minute. Either the, I mean, there was one instance where we were all ready to go and just God kind of threw some roadblocks in there for us personally and we just said no. Uh, there were other scenarios where we were ready to say yes and um, the elders at the church said, you know what, we don't need that position anymore. Um, it was like, to keep us from going there, it seemed like God actually took the job away. Like, it just no longer existed. Uh, that's why we're not in Pennsylvania right now. Thanks, God. Um, we're, we're, we're glad about that. But when it came to Blessed Hope, there, there were none of those things. Like, everything just fell into place. Our biggest concern in moving was the kids. We were so concerned about the kids in the move because we had always lived in the Quad Cities. All of our extended family lived in the Quad Cities, uh, and it was close family. We were together a lot. There were a lot of things to celebrate and times to be around each other. And we told the kids, and they were sad, but they weren't devastated. They handled it well. Uh, Travis, Travis uh, actually that night, um, in, in good kid fashion, took a picture of his room and posted it on Instagram. Goodbye, room. <laughs> We're moving to Vinton. Um, and his friends responded appropriately. You know, they didn't ignore it. They didn't whatever, they, they responded appropriately as you would want kids to do with, oh, Travis, we're going to miss you and it's going to, you're going to be fine. We'll, we'll, we'll still hang out. And, you know, Aubrey, Aubrey had a similar experience. The only catch there was she told my boss before I did. <laughs> I, I worked as a counselor in the elementary school where, where the kids went to school and, um, you know, this happened over Christmas vacation. And by the time we got back to school, she walked right up to Mr. J Hey, Mr. J, we're moving to Vinton tomorrow. Well, it turns out we weren't moving to Vinton tomorrow, and he and I sorted that out. And, but that was the thing. We committed to giving nine weeks. We were going to finish the quarter, third quarter. We were going to give them nine weeks. And in that nine weeks, we had to sell our house. That was another big thing we had to figure out. We decided we were going to sell it ourselves because when you have to sell your house in nine weeks, 
Selling yourself seems like the smart way to do it. <laughs> Two days, and we had our first offer. Four days before we had our first open house, we had an accepted offer. And then it was work for Carrie. Because, I mean, we just, we both have to work in our, to make our family work the way it should. We both have to work. She was leaving her job at Vera French. She was a social worker. She'd been there for, for years. And it was, it was time for us to, to, to move. And so she had to find different work. And um, in my mind, in one of my prayers, one of the things I did not want to do was ask my wife to leave her family, to leave the home that we've known and loved, and to move so that I could pursue, and that she with me, we could pursue this calling of God, and then when we get here, say, oh, but you still have to work, and I need you to drive 90 minutes a day. Hey, buddy, I need you to drive 90 minutes a day to get there and back. I didn't want to do that at all. And we prayed and prayed and prayed, and a month before we got here, Carrie had a job in a completely different field doing something completely different that met all of our needs. And we had no place to live. It was January when we were making this transition and and we're looking for places to be and we're trying to figure out where to live. And there's not a whole lot for sale in January. And if there is a lot for sale in January, it's probably been for sale for a long time for a reason. But Kevin, a guy we didn't really know, said, hey, I I got a house to rent. And I'm pretty sure he held that open for us. He probably wouldn't admit it. Um, But somehow it was still open when we got here in, in March uh, and so we lived there for a while, and we're like, okay, well, we'll just be in that house for a while. We won't worry about finding a, a home to buy. We'll just stay put for a while. And the next thing you know, I got Bob Lutz calling me after we've been here about two weeks going, hey, my neighbor's going to sell his house at some point. You want to talk to him? Sure. Went and, and met Bill and, and looked at the house. And so before his house ever went on the market with no realtors involved at all, we just shook hands and had a gentleman's agreement to buy his home. And we moved in a couple of months later. And Everything fell into place. Oh, except for the house that we sold in four days. That fell through. She couldn't close on time. So we relisted it. And it sat there for about a month. And then we sold it for about $3,000 more than we would have. And so ultimately in the transition, even though there was a little stress involved, it cost us absolutely zero to have it on the market a little longer uh, and all of those things. And so God took care of everything. And actually, fun, fun story has nothing to do with this. Uh, actually, it does, I suppose, with the providence of God. Uh, he must have really wanted that lady in the house because she was our first offer. The one that we got after two days. Uh, as a family we knew, went to the elementary school. Uh, as a divorced gal trying to stay in the area. But she couldn't buy the home without selling her home first. And we had, we had nine weeks, so we declined her contingent offer. But when the sale fell through and it went back on the market, it turns out that her home had sold. And she was right back um, and ready to, to, to take the home that she wanted that she couldn't get. It, it worked out. And, and my family, bless them, they love us, they care about us, but every time something happened, I, I would have a conversation with them and, and they would say something clever like, oh, man, you are so lucky that it worked out that way. Oh, how convenient. Oh, what a coincidence. And, and I would say, no, 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 no. This is the providence of God. Okay. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in coincidence. I am not saying that everything that happens that's coincidental is the providence of God. Listen, if you are thinking of a song and then the song comes on the radio, 
I'm not suggesting that God's hand is somehow working to let you hear that song on the radio. I'm not suggesting that if you were thinking of your mom and then your mom calls, that somehow God... What I'm suggesting is that God, because he's omniscient, which means he knows everything, and because he's omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful and can do what he will, that there are things that God does behind the scenes that we will never know that move in a direction for the good of his people, out of the goodness of his nature, and we call it providence. It's the moving of God through his people in a way that blesses us that we don't deserve, and the book of Esther is littered with it. So we're going to take a little journey, and I, and I want to show you some things here about how this works, because God's promises are true. And the reason we talk about this is because I need you to understand. I mean, I need you to understand, especially in times like this, Vinton, especially in times like this. I need you to understand that God is true to his promises, and that God is always working to be true to his promises. And I think we can see it clearly here. Let's look at Jeremiah 29, 11, says this. This is God talking. I'm sorry, this is Jeremiah talking. Uh, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's reflecting on God's promises. And he says, I know the plans that God has for me. He's writing this down through the power of the Holy Spirit. I know the plans I have for you. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And they are plans for good and not for disaster. And this is God saying, I have plans to give you hope and a future. Do you know when that happens? We actually read the text that coincides with this last week when we read in, in Lamentations 3. Jeremiah, in his own words, is sitting on a hill overlooking a, a, a city that has been destroyed. He's looking at a city that's been destroyed, and he looks and he says, Oh, I will never forget this awful time. I will never forget the grief that I feel right now. I will never forget how tragic this moment is. There is nothing that is ever going to erase this for me. I will always remember, but in this I have hope, that God is good and he is gracious and his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's where that hymn comes from. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. And we sing this song about the faithfulness of God and the reason Jeremiah has such hope in the faithfulness of God is because this is the promise that God gave him. I know the plans I have for you, and they are plans for good. They're not for destruction. They're not for bad. They're not for disaster. But my plans for you are to give you hope and a future. And so he's saying to Jeremiah, the nation of Israel will rise again, and I will take care of you, and the Jews will thrive as a people, and the Israelites will be everything that I've called them to be. And that is a promise that God gave. And then, here's what I need you to understand about that. It almost didn't happen. In 423 B.C., Vince was telling the kids the story. In 423 B.C., Haman, counselor to the king, the highest in the kingdom except for the king himself, esteemed above all others, plots to wipe out the Jews from the face of the earth. And, and, and Vince and I did some study on this this week. And, and when I say Vince and I did some study, I said, Vince, I don't know the answer to this. Can you help me? And Vince did some research and did some study. And Vince said, hey, Matt, I found the answer to this. The reason that Haman hates, um, hates Mordecai and hates the Jews is because uh, he's a descendant of the Amalekites. 
And the Amalekites, if you read through the history of Scripture, you go back and read through those first five books, the historical books of the Bible, uh, we see that the Amalekites and the Jews are enemies because God has judged the Amalekites and their sinfulness, their, their detestable practices, their child sacrifice, their idol worship, all of it. He has, he has judged them and he uses the Israelites as his instrument to do so, to move them out, to strip power from them. And the Amalekites hate the Jews. And so Mordecai's hatred I'm sorry, Haman's hatred of Mordecai makes more sense in that context. But, but because he hates the Jews and he has a personal beef with Mordecai, and I point here because um, that's where Nash was, um, he, has a, he has this personal beef against Mordecai and he hates the Jews. He uses that as this, as this way to worm his way in and to sneak in and somehow get the king to agree to this decree. Um, and when it was done, dispatches were sent by swift messenger into all the provinces of the empire, giving the order that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. Not killed, not slaughtered, not annihilated, but all three apparently makes it worse. Killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This is genocide. God says, I know the plans I have for you. I have plans for a future, not disaster, not death and genocide and slaughter. But I have plans for a future and for hope and for something so good for your people. And and, and they are going to thrive. And then before those plans are carried out, shortly after, God makes this promise. We see this scenario where a law has been issued that on a single day, the genocide of the Jews would take place. Young and old, women and children, slaughtered, annihilated, and killed on a single day. And it was scheduled to happen on March 7th. And this went out everywhere. And oh, by the way, added incentive, in case you weren't a violent person and were thinking, ah, my neighbor hasn't really done anything to me. I'm not sure I want to annihilate, kill, and slaughter him and his family. If you do, you get to have all his stuff. Some of you are wondering, well, how could a decree like that even work? Why would anybody do that? Well, because... When you do that, and I think Haman was betting on the fact that somebody would be willing to step in, annihilate, and take all your stuff. That was the law, and the law of the most powerful nation in the world, right? At this point in time, Israel's in exile. They don't have the power. They're not unified as a people. They're scattered as a people. There is no army. There's no defense. There's nothing that they can do to stand up against this. There's nowhere for them to run. There is nothing for them to do because the most powerful man in the world at the time put a stamp on this decree, this is law. And God's promise, I have plans for you. I have a hope for you. I have a future for you. It is now in jeopardy. Except it's not really because of his providence. And here's what I want you to see. Esther 7, 3 and 4 then. This is Esther being bold enough to come before the king. The word tells us that she is in just the right place at just the right time. Literally translated, for a time such as this one. That she is in a position as queen for a time just like this so that she can say to the king these words. If I found favor with the king and if it pleases the king, grant my request. I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. 
For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. I mean, those are Haman's words. Those are the king's words. And she's putting them back in his face. My people have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. And if we had merely been sold as slaves, I'd remain quiet. I wouldn't say anything. That would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. But this is too much. And, of course, the king responds with fury. Um, the king responds against Haman with fury that someone, he doesn't care about the Jews. He doesn't care one lick about the Jews. But the king responds with fury that someone would dare come against his queen that belongs to him is the way he would have viewed it. She is mine. You can't touch her. And so the king responds, and the people are saved. And we look at that, and uh, we would say, wow, what a coincidence. So my family would say, if they read that, and if they believed it to be true, they would say, wow, what a coincidence. That man, just as Haman was about to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth, um, that Queen Esther just happened to be a Jew, and just happened to be bold enough to say something, and everything got stopped. Man, what a coincidence. Boy, they were really lucky that happened. Or is it possible that the providence of God has done something to put her in a position literally for just a time such as this? And so we say that and we, and we wrestle with it. But you know what? There's more. Okay. We're going to go through these pretty quickly here, but there's more. Okay. Um, how is it that Mordecai and Esther were even in this position in the first place? Well, here's something fun. Uh, about five years before Haman and Mordecai ever met. Mordecai did something that Haman doesn't know about. Mordecai thwarts an assassin, assassination attempt against the king. Mordecai happens to be standing around at the city gate, and he happens to overhear two dudes. And those two dudes happen to guard the chamber door of Xerxes. And those two dudes apparently are unhappy with Xerxes. Remember, Vince told you, this is not a good king. Not a great king, but he's king. And some people don't like it because he's not a cool dude. And so they're standing there and they're plotting, how are they going to kill Xerxes? How are they going to literally mutiny, overthrow, coup d'etat, take over the government? How are they going to do this? Mordecai overhears and he reports it to the king's attendants. They take care of it. The plot is thwarted because Mordecai stepped in. He just happened to be there at just the right time. But here's what's cool. So five years later, this is five years ago, the king doesn't even really know this happened, right? He just knows all of a sudden those guys at my door, they're replaced. They're gone. I doubt he ever even looked him in the face. They're gone. But there's one night where he just so happens, coincidence, right? He just can't sleep. He's up all night. And there is nothing to get you to bed faster than someone reading something boring to you. So I, when Carrie can't sleep, she usually pulls out my old sermon notes. <laughs> Whatever. Um, so Mordecai, who can't sleep, here's what he says. He says, hey, read me my history. He says to his attendants, read me my history. So the attendants bring in the books where his history is written, the history of his kingdom, and they bring them in, and they open them up, and they start reading. And guess where, coincidentally, I'm sure, they start to read 
in those records, they discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. And so Mordecai, I'm sorry, uh, Xerxes is reading this about Mordecai and he's hearing it and he's, he's never heard this before. And he says, whoa, time out. What were, it's like, my life is pretty important. This guy stopped them from killing me. What reward did we ever give him? What recognition did we give Mordecai for that? And the answer was uh, nothing. Nothing was ever done for him. He saved your life, but nothing was ever done. And so now all of a sudden, for no reason at all, except the coincidence of God having Mordecai there at the right time and the coincidence of, of the coincidence of Xerxes not being able to sleep and the coincidence of him asking for his history to be read and the coincidence for them opening it up to the five-year-before passage. All of the nice coincidences. All of a sudden, Xerxes is predisposed favorably to Mordecai. This would be the wrong time for somebody to come and say, hey, I would like to hang Mordecai on a 40-foot gallows. Coincidence. But, but there's more, you know. So not, oh my goodness. Why was Esther even queen? Five years before that, I hope you're seeing a pattern that none of this is like, oh, this all happened in like a six-week time period. You know, five years before that, Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace because she won the beauty pageant. And the beauty pageant was, as Vince said, there were six months of perfume and cleansing and showering, and then another six months of etiquette. And he, because he's a children's pastor, um, talked about it as wearing high heels. There were some other things that she was learning, okay, because the king had very specific needs. You can read the notes. Um, But the king, Esther takes six months of beauty treatments and six months of training before she's presented to the king. Now, here's the thing. Esther wasn't the only one presented to the king. In fact, he had presentations made to him almost every night. And this had gone on for quite some time. But with Esther, coincidentally, he was well-pleased. So he placed a crown on her head and made her queen. Now, he didn't keep her in the palace. He sent her back to the harem but he made her queen. Why did he even need a new queen? Well, he didn't because I think another five years before that, Xerxes' current queen decided to get a little bit presumptuous and say no. Xerxes ordered them to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He was having a big party and he wanted to show her off. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty for she was a very beautiful woman. This is the G-rated version that the Bible gives us. But when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. And so the decision was to exile her and to just replace her. Thus, the beauty pageant. Thus, the coincidence of Esther being the one to catch his eye. Thus, the coincidence that Esther could remind him of Mordecai who saves him. Thus, the coincidence of her being in just the right place at just the right time for just the situation like this one. Because in God's providence, he's working behind the scenes. But there's more than that. Esther was the daughter of that guy 
who was Mordecai's uncle, Mordecai ended, Mordecai ended up adopting his younger cousin Esther. That didn't have to happen. Any of you ever been young? You remember when you were young? You remember when you were young and you were thinking, man, I wish I could adopt a kid. Some of you were thinking, yes, and we did that. And some of you were thinking, oh my goodness, no, thank you. But Mordecai was in a position where his younger cousin needed a home, needed fathering, needed love, and Mordecai steps in. Why? Coincidentally, for just a time such as this. You know why that's important? Because Mordecai was one who was taken into exile. Do you know who Nebuchadnezzar took into exile? The best and the brightest. See, when Mordecai exiled the people, he took with him the ones that he saw potential in. And so he took Mordecai, and Mordecai took Esther with him because she needed a home, and he took her with, and he raised her. So she was even there when the time came. Coincidence? Sure. See, I, I think you're hopefully you're, you're seeing a pattern here about how Mordecai, at just the right time, adopts his cousin who needs a home so that when they go into exile, she is there. She is with him. Vashti revolts against the, against the king, and she's exiled. And so in his wisdom, the king decides he's going to have a beauty peasant and select a new queen. This is 10 years before the Jews are about to be annihilated. And, and it just so happens that Esther is the most beautiful woman, and it just so happens that Esther becomes queen, and it just so happens then that Mordecai saves the king, and it just so happens that five years later, Mordecai's mind, or, or Xerxes' mind, is, is reminded of Mordecai, and he chooses to, to do favorable things for him. And it just so happens that the queen can say to her husband, 10 years after all of this even starts, hey, why do you hate me? Why are you trying to annihilate my people? And Xerxes can say, that's not my intention. And he steps in and he fixes it and he punishes Haman. All of that and what we would say if you were in my family is, man, that is a book full of coincidences. In fact, recent scholarship, um, anti-biblical scholarship, would say that now there's no argument that this book was written at this time. Like we've got, we've got archaeological history to prove this book was written here. But what's happened now is because people don't understand the providence of God, um, this, this uh, secular scholarship would say, well, this was a Jewish story, not a Jewish truth. And the argument, the whole argument behind, well, this isn't a true thing that's in the Bible, but this is a fairy tale that's in the Bible. The whole argument is this is a fairy tale because there's no way all of that stuff should work out like that. The only way all of that stuff works out is, this is if this is a fairy tale, if this is an after-school special. Otherwise, there's no way. But we know that it's because of the providence of God that these things happen the way that they're supposed to happen. Because of God's providence. And because of God's providence, you have to excuse my note page. Apparently, I put the wrong slides in there. Um, because of God's providence, we see this in our own lives. Just like the Jews saw it there in that day. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Because of a God that loves you, there is hope. The hope is rooted 
in the God of the universe who is omniscient and who knows all things and who's omnipotent and can do what he will. And some of you are here this morning and you are thinking, then why, 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 why? If God is omniscient, he can do what he will. And if God is omnipotent and he has the power to pull it off, then why? Why is it broken? Why is it messy? Why does it hurt? Why do we suffer? Why, 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 why? I get the question. I told you last week, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that we are hard-pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. I know that we are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. I know that we are hunted down, but we are never abandoned by God. I know that we will get knocked down, but that we will not be destroyed. And you know how that works? It works when you say yes. It works when you say yes. See, if it's true that God in his omniscience and his omnipotence has moved things into place, if that's true, then that means that you are where you are for a reason. But you have to say yes. Mordecai had to say yes to adopting his cousin. Esther had to say yes to talking to the king. And you know what? Talking to the king is not as easy as knocking on his door and saying, hey, honey, can we chat for a second? Mordecai hadn't been talked to by the king in months. And to just go talk to the king, if he was unhappy that he was disturbed, you would be killed. It wasn't simple. God moved the pieces in place in his providence, in his omniscience, in his wisdom, in his power. He moves the pieces in place, but people have to say yes. Mordecai had to say, yes, Esther, I will raise you. And then Mordecai tells Esther this. He says, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you're going to escape when all the other Jews are killed. Don't think for a second that's going to happen. You'll be annihilated just like we are, and somebody will take your possessions just like they'll take ours. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews may come from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps, and this is not really a question, this is a statement, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a moment as this, just such a time as this. And Esther has to say yes, and she hems and she haws, but look, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. Hey, this is a big deal. Fast. Don't eat or drink. You know, like when you have surgery coming up and they're like, hey, probably for like eight hours before the surgery, you shouldn't eat or drink anything. And you're like, oh man, eight hours. Whoa. Okay. And then you get so thirsty and you're like, can I just have an ice cube? I just want an ice. Don't eat or drink anything for three days. My maids and I will do the same, and then, though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. And if I must die, I must die, but I am in place for just such a time as this. Listen to me, church. God has you where he has you for just such a moment as this one. I don't know what it is that he's asked you to do, but there is something. Last text. Take a look at Ephesians 2.10. We are God's masterpiece. He's created us new in Christ Jesus so he can do the good things he planned for us long ago. 
I don't know how you think God feels about you. Some of you, especially if you haven't been to church in a while or, or if you've been to church but you got secrets in your closet that you think none of us know about or whatever else it is, I don't know how you think God feels about you, but listen to me. I know how God feels about you. This is how God feels about you. God says, you are my masterpiece. You are my fine craftsmanship. You are my work of art. You are the thing that I carefully, lovingly, painstakingly made. Basically, God is saying, hey, Dude, on your fridge, I got, I got, or on my fridge, I got your picture, right? I carry it around in my wallet. When people want to talk to me, I'm like, hey, yeah, 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 but, but have, you, have, you seen, have you seen my son? Have you seen my daughter, right? He feels that way about you. God feels so strongly about you that he says you are his masterpiece. Now, I've been called a lot of things, Masterpiece hasn't usually been one of them with a straight face. But when God looks at me, he says, Matt Hans, you are my masterpiece. Here's the word. You are my handiwork. You are my craftsmanship. He's like, man, I created you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Psalm 139 tells us that I knit you together. And then when you became a Christian... I made you brand new in Christ. I made you even better in Christ. I remade you into something useful and on mission for just such a time as this. And all you have to do is say yes. See, I, I look at that and he says, he says, I made you new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. That means long ago, God knew in his providence in his goodness, working things for the good of those that are called according to his purposes. That means that long ago, in his providence, God knew that you would be here, and God knew that the circumstances would be here, and God, in his provision, has said, you know what? I put you in that moment for just such a time as this one. But you have to say yes. Mordecai had to say yes to Esther. Esther had to say yes to God. All of those things were necessary because God had worked behind the scenes in his omniscience and his omnipotence to bring this about. So she was right where she needed to be for just such a time as this. And so are you. You have a divine appointment in your life because God made you new in Christ Jesus so that you could do the good things that he planned for you long ago. Long ago, he planned something for you so that right now, you can say, yes, you are in position for just such a time as this to do what God has called you to do. And I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it has something to do with the Rao family right now. Maybe it has something to do with the Ferguson family. Maybe it has something to do with the town of Vinton and Faith and Action. Maybe it has something to do with this addition and what's going to happen in the future because of it. Maybe it has something to do with something I don't even know about. Maybe it has to do with your neighbor that is just broken and lonely and needs a friend. I can tell you this, I can tell you that right now, Vinton, and not just Vinton, but Vinton is where we live, that in Vinton, there are people right now that are searching and they're lost and they're broken and they don't know what to think. They don't know what to think because they hear stories of tragedy that remind them that life is fragile. They don't know what to think because people they loved have been taken away. They don't know what to think because people that maybe they've never even met before have, have died suddenly 
in heart attacks and fires and other. They don't know what to think and they are lost and they are broken and they have no idea what's next and, and they live right next to you. And they're not going to come here and talk to me. They're not going to come here and talk to me. They don't want to talk to me. They don't want to talk to that pastor. But you know who they want to talk to? They want to talk to their neighbor. Oh man, they want to talk to their neighbor. They want to talk to their coworker. They, they want to talk to the, to the guy at the restaurant. They always want to talk to my wife. Nobody, everyone's talked to me, and they always want to talk to her. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that this time is perilous. I know that people, we said last week, when tragedy happens, and we've had two here in the last couple of weeks in Vinton, tragedies that, that have got people thinking beyond themselves. They've got people thinking outside of the temporary. They've got people thinking about what happens next. They've got people thinking about more than just what am I going to do today? And they're going to ask, right? And, and we said some people are going to turn bitter. They're going to be bitter against God and that's what it's going to be. But some people are going are to be leaning into God and asking for answers. And I need you to be where you are for just such a time as this because God has you here on purpose to do these good works that he planned for you long ago before we knew this was even going to happen, before we knew there was going to be this moment. God did and he has been preparing just like for years he prepared with Mordecai taking Esther, and Vashti being deposed and deported and exiled, and Esther becoming queen, and Mordecai stopping the assassination plot, and God bringing Mordecai to Xerxes' mind, and the queen being bold enough to step in and say, hey, you can't wipe out my people, and the king responding, right? Well before that minute, because God is divine and he's omniscient and he has been working everything, 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 so that when we get here, it can get fixed and it can get right and it can be redeemed and it can move forward. And I have no idea what it is for you. I have no idea, but I know that God has been working since the beginning to come up with a divine plan for you so that right now you can do your job. And I'm yelling at you and I'm sorry. It is too big. It is too big. Oh, it's too big. We got to quit. We got to eat some lunch. We got to bounce in a house. We got to eat some snow cones and cotton candy and all of that. But listen, I guess. Yeah, I'm with you, brother. Before it happens, though, we're going to pray. And as we pray, I'm going to ask Malia to come up, and she's got a couple of just very quick things for us, and the praise team's going to close us out with a song. And before any of that happens, okay, I just need you to think about this one thing. It's one thing. What is God asking you to do? What position are you in for just such a time as this? Because it's bigger than you think it is, and he has been preparing it for a long time, and he has moved a lot of pieces around so that you would be here in this moment that you would respond and that his divine appointment for you could be met. Heavenly Father, God, we just love you so much and we thank you that you are God and that we are not. We thank you that you are God and that you are in control. And God, we confess to you that sometimes we try to be God. We try to be in control. We try to figure it out. We try to assume what it would be like if we were in charge of all things. And we confess to you right now in this moment that we would be terrible at it. But you are all-knowing. You know all things from beginning to end. And you are all-powerful. 
And so you have done things that we can't possibly understand, moving pieces on the board, preparing us for just such a time as this so that we are ready to respond. God, I pray that you will, in your infinite wisdom and power, that you will move in our hearts to submit to you and to respond to you, to just be all in on the mission. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that we are broken people and that without are turning and following Jesus Christ, we are hopelessly lost. But when we do that, we are right with you. We are invited into the family of God and we are made new and whole and given mission so that we can be actively about the things that you've put in our path. Father, we love you and we praise you and we just thank you. Amen.